This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, if you don't know what Liquid IV is, we'll buckle up because I'm going to throw you a game changer. Liquid IV is a hydration multiplier that not only tastes great, but is a non-GMO electric light drink mix. Powered by cellular transport technology to deliver hydration to the body faster and more efficiently than water can just do alone. One stick contains three times the electrolytes of traditional sports drinks with five essential vitamins. Now, I pride myself on telling you about things that I either already like or just use in my everyday life. And I have to say, I've actually been a fan of Liquid IV for a long, long time now. I use it for everything from, you know, just long runs to stay in shape, all those late nights with those after hours or just when I'm feeling a little dehydrated. I turn to it so it could just, my God, set me straight, make me feel like a million bucks again, and just get me ready for the day. So please head on over to their website. That's liquid-iv.com to check out their amazing line of products. And get this, when you use promo code Art of the Beholder, all one word, you'll get 20% off your order. Now, if you need a little direction on where to start, I recommend Lemon Lime. Guys, you're going to love it, won't be disappointed. So please give it a shot and get more fuel for life's adventures. Now, back to the show. Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome. Greetings and salutations, all you beautiful people, and welcome to another episode of Art of the Beholder, a show dedicated to all things eclectic in the world of art, where we do deep dives into deep cuts and help you understand why damn things matter. I'm your host, Novo Day, and today we're going to be talking about art and music and theater, focusing on the career of one Mr. Tom Waits. To hash it out, I am joined by my favorite rain dog on the planet, and that is Philip Church of philipchurch.com tech welcome back to the show i am a rain dog too <laughs> he is hey, a rain thanks for he having did me. a little um oh, I'm a rain dog oh man you too. read my mind i oh, was you know I what's crazy it. is i have been practicing my impression of tom waits and every time i do it I, it hurts my vocal a little bit like i i i yeah i'll i'll bring out like i can just like i've done in other shows i can say like a phrase to kind of conjure you know, the Tom Waits inside me, and I'll do that a little later, but that was good. Does that hurt your vocal? It fries I'm sure it. if I did it for an extended period of time, yeah, it, it might, but just being able to, like, crank out a little, just a little, like you said, like the, the beginning was greetings and salutations, greetings. everybody. Yeah, because you really like to get that growl, that rasp, that gravel. I mean, I, yeah, gravel. when I go into those octaves, that deep, that baritone, that bass, it it hurts. Like, I, I cough a little bit afterwards. That's why I'm not going to do too many impressions. I'm going to re- rely on you now. Oh, you're the guy now. Yeah, that's cool. Let me know. And I mean, and he's been doing this for like literally 50. Now that it's 2023 and uh, he's been literally putting out albums for 50 years. Oh, I don't know the last. I guess it's been a minute since he put one out, I suppose. But still, he's been a musician for 50 years. He has such a unique like again, that whole voice and persona. And yeah, just... let's tell the good people why, though. Why are we talking about Tom Waits today? So Tom Waits helped to create this mythos, if you will, of the of the street hustling lounge lizard. That that was that was the phrase lounge lounge lizard. Okay. He does love. He yeah. loves that one. You he know, the that. card playing, smokes a pack a day, traveling, right? Drinks, uh, you know, a fifth of whiskey a night, like this working man archetype in America that. You know, partly because he's saying about those worlds but for a like long time the, too. It's like Tim Burton for adults. 
<laughs> yeah, he became this kind of special, honestly, every, every like, man kind of legend. Like he has this awesome essence of creepiness to him that he brings out, but he's also just such a wonderful, just through and through like musician. Oh yes, that like it's not it's not it's his his songwriting style is surprisingly like diverse, and so um, yeah, it's it's so he he again he's like Americana paintings. Oh, you um, took the word right out of my mouth. Like, have like it's like if you took Nighthawks at the diner and accidentally dropped it in a puddle. Now like for our audience, we need to focus on a key word there, and that word is Americana. Because I feel like when I think of his career and his artistry, like he is in essence the concept of Americana. And you know, like yeah. it's crazy to think about, you know, when like we're men, when men were men, kind of thing. And he just embodied his career and what he sang about, and even down to the imagery he helped cultivate, and everything was america yeah he yeah it, it's he he lives in like the underbelly of america in a way or something like that's it, it's like the space that he uh just decided to occupy and become like a part of and it just it really is like who he is it's um there's one part you know th that's like the million dollar question is this performance art is this really who he is deep down or is this the character he's playing you know throughout his career but before we answer that question we all need a little background. So Tom Waits was born Thomas Allen Waits on December 7th, 1949 in Whittier, California. Now I'm going to keep this uh, background section short and sweet because as already joked about, his career is long and vast and there's a lot to discuss. So let's hit the highlights. Of course, as we already touched on, he's an American musician, but he's also a composer, songwriter, and of course, an actor. That's so much, that is so important to note because a lot of the theatrics he helped to develop in his career went into his music and vice versa. He's won a number of Grammy awards throughout his career for just the, for just the former. And in 2011, he was inducted into the rock and roll hall of fame. In 2015, he was ranked as number 55 on Rolling Stones, hundred greatest songwriters of all time. So now it's Damn time right. to discuss. Now um, I have a question for you. To frame, so we're gonna frame um, his his career. Uh, obviously, we're gonna focus on the music, the discography, the albums. We're gonna throw in throw in a little bit of his filmography as well, because those, like I said, those worlds are closely tied to each other. But to frame that framing, I have a question for you, Mister Church, and that is this: Before we ask our conclusionary question, why study the works? I want to understand why. Does he have such a cult following? Because on paper, he he has a recipe for, I wouldn't say failure, you know, I wouldn't say something that severe, but he has a recipe to really push an audience away between his vocal timber, between his approach to, to musicology, the sound and the shapes he likes to write isn't very digestible. So why do the people come running to him? I think part of it is because it is it is unique. Um, it definitely at least well, I mean, it's he's probably spawned God knows how many, whether you want to call them like copycats or just oh, how many and other he people sued he's them. inspired. But <laughs> Tom, if you're yeah, listening, sure. don't sue us. Um, this is this is a retrospective. Yeah, no, we love, we you. love we're, you. We're yeah. on your side. We're not gonna um, use your music. But then like <laughs> and then like started off also like as as one sort of style and just completely like transformed into left turn. 
more like right in the middle. Yeah. And just like, and just realized he just struck gold. And despite it not being traditionally palatable, it's also so damned honest and like raw or whatever that you want to call it that you can't help but appreciate it. And it's not even just like the vocal stuff. Like, again, a lot of the, the musicianship, yeah, if you were it's to like. Describe his sound. Like in one sentence, two sentences, in a nutshell, someone someone that's listening probably right now has probably never heard the music of Tom Waits. How would you describe it? Um, you are shit faced at a start carnival with the vocal. Walking... I think the vocal timbre is the perfect nucleus. Okay, okay, okay. Um, you are shit faced. Um, you're still shit faced. That no, is true. Uh, you're still shit faced. So it's 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 a relatively grumbly, gravelly voice. It's it's technically, I guess, kind of deep as a result, but like deep, technically, raspy. he gravels literally it's a weird thing it's almost like it took over because yeah uh it's it's like it's hard to describe the actual pitch because there's so much just gravel to his voice um and that very much goes along with his just it literally sounds like he's lived his life life in dive bars like smoking drinking howling at the top of his yeah just howling at the top of his lungs to get all that damage done so that you know he just never stops sounding like somebody that is a really good impression oh my god have you been practicing, or is that something you've always just had in the back of that's your just, in the back of your tool bag? That's you something know, you I know. Um, I want to touch on probably my favorite thing I learned uh, in researching this piece is that his mother was a prostitute <laughs> and his father was a trout. Sorry, I can't. I cannot do it. Okay, I'm done. A box of donuts that sound like prostitutes' names. <laughs> yeah, um, that's a real line. And But anyways, the most important thing or the most fascinating thing, I should say, when I was doing my homework for this episode is that part of that sound was an artistic choice. You know, because I think a lot of people think that he naturally, he probably does to an extent naturally sound that way with his timber, but he pushes into that um, voluntarily. So this is still a choice in a way, an artistic choice. And he said he was, um, he said in interviews that he was emulating actually an uncle's raspy kind of gravelly voice and that it just became part of his image and he's used it ever since uh the other things i want to talk about before we 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 go into the uh the the discography you know we 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 focus on the art is uh, a couple of things to yeah the rhythm choices uses i think are very important i so i want to talk about that real quickly so a little bit of the music theory is that he though he focuses a lot on there's there's a holy trinity to the sound that is tom waits and that is blues jazz and what i would call folk or honestly when he's you know getting to the 80s almost tribal music industrial and um and his rhythms will mirror that a lot so he likes very simple not only common time but really like two over four phrases like dun 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 you know that very very simple four on the floor if not two on the floor just like super just that and it's always very percussive and that's why i use the word word industrial usually industrial kind of percussion or sounds is is usually in the rock arena or prog rock or you know think of nine inch nails that's like the gold standard for industrial music but he uh, how he does it is he you know instead of having very traditional percussion you know shakers and tambourines or whatever he's using pots and pans in the kitchen throws it together just literally the bathtubs uh (laughs) like the kitchen sink like 
just shit around the house and it's great. It's great. Uh, it, it's part of what I was describing earlier with just again, how like literally raw, like the guitar might not even be like perfectly tuned oh, or maybe it's just, yeah. you know, out of just, tune, like, out of key like sometimes. Yeah, and it's so like, and things don't exactly, yeah. They, and like as much as the percussion will follow that, what you talked about, it's interesting that it's like the rest of it, like, um, and again, I'm still thinking of uh, like uh, clap hands, guitar solo. Clap hands. It, it's, it's so like intentionally like off tempo in a way. It's so like esoteric. Like, but it's perfect. Purposeful because just like it Captain is, Beefheart, you know, they 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 wrote it that way. They wrote it yeah. to be a little off key or a little off and things like that. I think that's where the real genius is, is making it sound like it's like, you know, they're amateurish. Sound, yeah, it doesn't sound appealing at all necessarily. They Maybe it like, it's shit, it's wild. But like, no, it literally it's this like amazing <laughs> cacophonous, like, and it's it helps kind of emphasize the rest of this song. It just like puts you into this brief chaotic um, sort of like section and then yeah, or trance, you go back into like the, you, you go back into the lulling um, just like yeah, this, uh, awesome. The cyclical rhythms that he writes, uh, yeah. the, the more formal term. It just takes and, you right back in. Right. In, in theory is an ostinato, an ostinato. And they're very syncopated. So if it's not just two over four or four over four, it's, you know, it's dun, 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 dun. And that creates that, you know, because he went from, like I said, we really started with jazz and then he, and he pushed more into his blues and then he pushed into the, that folk kind of almost tribal like music. And that's where the, the mythos really came out of him being this, you know, circus traveling bohemian, you know, ringleader kind of character. And uh, that's where I want to start is uh, talking about, Closing time, 1973, and how he developed this character and partly who he was and who he wanted to be in terms of performance art. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this because we need to get into the to the meat, the meat uh, mm. down the road. And I, I just want to I want to start with this uh, with closing time, 1973. This guy could write a fucking ballad. The man is a romantic at heart. Exactly. Like as much as his music sounds rough and hard and, you know, there's underneath it all it's there's a sweetness to it he's, yeah. he's romantic back, an optimistic romantic the, yeah the tim burton analogy tim can be super creepy but he can also write like heartwarming like <laughs> beautiful things and make like gorgeous movies and like the, you know it's 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 funny that like when you almost feel like somebody is pigeonholed but then you pay closer attention to them and you're like no that's right they're actually an incredibly talented person and there's just like a few generalizations about their style right that kind of become like just you know synonymous with their name basically um and yeah it's again that like weird dark bayou type sound again like the way oh, yeah. that the that like the even the d down to other instrumental choices even beyond just the percussion aspect that you were talking these about these at the beginning like, were centered around the piano so he's he's uh i wouldn't say he's classically it's pretty, trained it's pretty it's more americana than ever right. in a certain way it's a certain type of americana i think that, I that yeah that's why i always bring it back to the ballad you know and he though he's he started with guitar and ukulele and some of those kind of stringed instruments. And then, well, piano is technically a stringed instrument. People forget True. that, but it's this hit it's, with it's it's a little mallets. Yeah, exactly. And, um, so, but yeah, he learned, he took piano lessons and that's where he would kind of like center his pieces. Cause he wanted to be essentially a jazz musician in the beginning. And we see that through, I think standout pieces for me is of course the very first track on the very first album. Uh, and Martha. Oh yeah. Martha's beautiful. I, that's one of my favorites, but, um, and of course, you know, like the other, one of the more romantic ones in an interesting, like less romantic way, but it's still just soppy and drunk. And it's, and it's like, uh, 
just attitude or messaging in a way is uh, the, I hope I don't fall in love with you. I used to perform that when I would do cover uh, no shit. Uh, sets and really? yeah, when I would do cover sets and bars. Wow. Uh, Cause again, I'm this impressed. is back when, yeah, it was, well, it's, it's almost entire. I think it's like, there's a little bit of non guitar. I think there's like some kind of something in the background. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very simple, straightforward. It's super, yeah, very ballad. And this is before he adopted way, like, again, he didn't lean into the weirdness just yet. Again, this is like so much more straightforward. This is almost like, again, not Motown, but like this reeks of like 50s, like man about the city. Well, again, no, yeah, I, I like think you're rambling. You made the right like, point. Man. I think Motown is the way to talk about it because he was like a lot of, you know, I, I don't want to say. For Tom Waits, though, it's more inspiration and tribute and homage where I don't think he's like an Elvis where he's just completely copying and stealing their style to a lesser extent. He was wanting to pay tribute and he was clearly inspired by a lot of the uh, artists the, the of the black community. And he put that into his music a lot, which is a good segue to 1974's The Heart of Saturday Night, where he really started to, you really saw, you really saw what we were talking about in the intro and his lyrics. So here we're steering the, the lyrical interest in nightlife and poverty and criminality, um, a, AKA the, just the, the U.S. nightlife, the lounge lizards, the, you know, all that stuff. Highlights include looking for The Heart of Saturday Night. So good. Title track, it's, yeah, it's, incredibly like it, it helps kind of continue to stand for a brief example of just like if if you're doing the cliffs notes versions of how his career evolves yeah that would be i think probably one of the best ones to pull from this album um just to kind of show like what it is and it's only again like it's only a year after his last one so it's not oh, drastically different remember just this yet. is the 60s and 70s where the output would be incredible people would put out an album every like once a year and still tour behind it which is crazy. Yeah, Staley Dan cranked him out at first, and then, yeah, I guess that was the style, and that's absolutely what he does. And I felt like his theatrical side didn't really, really shine through until my favorite of his his, his earlier work, which is Nighthawks at the Diner, 1975, where this was very, very much that lounge, lounge lizard, you know, singing in the, in, in the jazz hall at two in the morning. And what's great about this is it's part live album, but part concept studio album because they had a live you can hear it in the recordings uh they had a live studio audience you know while he was doing a lot of these sets but then they would like cut it together you know in a certain way just to make yeah. a cohesive actual studio album it's clearly mix and mastered a certain way he's never been overproduced we don't have to worry fucking about that that's where he's the opposite of steely <laughs> dan and our earlier example or your early example but i feel like this one of his earlier works as much as closing time in the heart of saturday night was was solid I felt like there's something about Nighthawks at the Diner that that spoke to me. I thought it was the best work he's done in these earlier years. Uh, the ones before it are a little more preferential to me, Ooh, but really? I yeah, but I also think in a way it's because this is the most he has like acknowledged so far his like more Tom Wheatsy like the what he sort of is on his way to become in yeah. the theatrical. So yeah, I mean I I think part of it is that maybe this like balance of of like the sort of character slash him being like the original Tom Waits, if you will, uh, yeah. doesn't maybe do it for me because once he goes full character, then again, I still like, I, I love it. But there's something about this. It feels like a, an in-between phase. And I, I, I've, I don't love this album, um, but it's also again, like if it was just on in the background, I, I wouldn't complain. You know, I wouldn't be like, no, oh, that's, no, that's why we do the show. Like count, count uh, or point counterpoint 
is uh, that's fascinating. Well, I think part of it is, again, down to uh, it's subjective. It's down to taste. I've always been at my heart a jazz lover. I love jazz more than most other genres. Yeah. And this is where he was most jazzy in the beginning. And then Matt, uh, you know, he went, I think, I don't want to spend a ton of time on the next three. Um, please, if you, if you have anything <laughs> to say, though, I mean, I, I, I won't keep you. But Small Change, 1976, Foreign Affairs, 1977, Blue Valentine, 1978. I feel like to sum up this trilogy of albums, you know, just as uh, Philip eloquently put it, you know, as behind all the rough production and the and the the rough sounds and his and his rough voice, these are so these are a, a, a lot of ballads and they're just so sweet and so romantic. Yeah, it's he. I don't know if he just like went through something or like you know we did already say that he's sure a rom- romantic at heart though. So yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean it's just he. Remember, he was an alcoholic during this time. He really did smoke probably a pack of cigs a night. He was this character in a lot of ways. You know, I, I kind of yeah. Tom Wait. Tom Waits is Tom Waits. Kind of feel like that's what he would literally. He would just prefer to be out at a bar, just like playing and smoking, and just like he like. I feel like it's not it's not work to him. That's that's who he is and what he loves to do. But um, yeah, I mean, just, you know, like even the, the titles speak so much more clearly. And like you've got your things like Red Shoes by the Drugstore, Romeo is Bleeding, um, <laughs> Blue Valentines. I never he talked talks to strangers. a lot about death. There's a lot of motifs he, yeah. he uses over and over again. And uh, homicide, suicide. He'll talk about death a lot in his oh. in his pieces. He is a morbid, macabre little man. But uh, again, he just has yet part to, of why I think we he has relate yet to, to him. Lean, There's that mortality yeah. there. He, he's yet to lean into it fully again, as we keep sort of teasing in his career. Because uh, yeah, he goes through this like sweet face. He does. It's a lot of just ballads, him and a piano, very just loving, like thought out stuff for the most part. But still, still got those dabbles of uh, darkness. You got your Tom again. It's it's Tom Waits through and through in every way. Still, it's so funny how he's so him all the time. It's just the the wild extremes that his personality can kind of inhabit all at once is is just again it's very unique and this was at the end of this period this actually started his acting career with yeah. paradise alley in 1978 of course he was i've not playing seen that bit. one i i there's a lot i haven't seen i will be honest with the i've audience. not seen most of these <laughs> yeah i haven't seen a lot of them but i you know i know of them from the history we've i've seen wolfen like, because it's a horror like you? hilarious cl- oh yeah that's like oh, a man. cult cheesy well he's classic. always like like these kind of bit characters or he's kind of playing a version of himself or he's playing a singer or you know things like that but at least he got his start and i think he got the bug here and yeah. i i don't think we'll start to see for another four to five years we won't see him starting to take on a bigger um you know challenge not only to himself but also to spread his wings. He wanted yeah. clearly eventually wanted to become an actor as much I, as he was a musician. Yeah. And it's interesting to look at the sort of amount and, and sort of different types of roles that he had uh, early on. And, and then watching again, like cont- uh, contemporaneously uh, as he's again, leaning weirder and weirder, it's like <laughs> he starts getting more and more pike and people just love it. If they eat it up, this is just such an interesting character that he sort of, uh, exaggerates for everybody, but yeah, I I also just that's feel like thing, I feel know? like it is him to an extent, like yeah, that it that's why it is quote unquote easy, or why he's just kept it up for like fifty years basically because he just keeps going, yeah. yeah, he can't stop, and I think that's where he I think that's he he's a perfect subject for our show because he's at 
the, at the heart of it all, you know, the ultimate Umbrella he's an artist. That was my setup to transition to the fact that we need to tell the audience that he was never commercially successful no. his whole career. He was critically successful. He, is not he was acclaimed. Mainstream, you know, he is I, I, I think way. he's... He's been finally compensated well in his older age, but during, um, you know, during his time, he was he was never, you know, the number one on the top billboards. He was, you know, he was always just like he sang about. He was part of that underbelly, and I think it came to. I'm curious to since you since we differed so much on uh, Nighthawks, I'm curious to hear how you feel about 1980s Heart Attack and Vine. So before I go, uh, what's just your you know first impression? I I like it. But it's it's still not mm. there. It's it's mm. it's it's like the last of that. It's like almost too romantic. It's almost like he's trying to like. Oh, it's a count. It's a point counterpoint again. I I love this album. I thought it was. I thought it was Tom Waits at his it is most. It's beautiful. Vulnerable blue blues side. I think and it's just that I you have it. to be in such a mood. Or some for me, maybe that's what it is. I, I'm very finicky with things like that. Like I can love an artist or an album and. You know, like just the mood's not right. And so this one just it's got a very specific time and place. And that's not just any time for me. No, I, I but feel again, like that's it a, is you're that's not a fair beautiful. impression. It's the, it is again, it's not a bad album. It is oh, just you know, I don't think he ever put out a bad album. Like uh, some there's there's we're not uh, biased at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, there are uh shades of gray. You know, I we can I think we can easily say that there are ones that are better than others, but I feel like he always he had a sound right from I right from the get-go you know i said this guy can write a ballad he kind of once he kind of found his sound and his lane he stayed there his whole career pretty much yeah if it ain't broke don't fix for, it for better or worse and this was i think this is important to talk about in 1980 because this was the turning point this is right before swordfish trombones and and i think we need to talk about the history a, a little more here and that is because he married his muse, and that was Kathleen Brennan. Uh, about this time, I think the as as the story goes, they met, and a week later they were married, and they've been married to this day. How romantic! Um, and this is at the exact time that he married this woman. His contract ended with uh, his original label, so he split from his management team, his record label, and moved to New York City. And his muse helped convince him to take a brand new musical direction. And they did that just that through the influences of Harry Parch. And of course, as already mentioned, Captain Beefheart. And that's when we get to the trilogy that is, or that starts with 1983's Swordfish Trombones. What can we say though? I don't know. This is hard. What can we say that hasn't already been said? These are classics in this style. Yeah, it's it's got the jazziness. It's it starts to get like almost a little darker, although it's a little more lyrically necessarily, not so much like as as musically. Because again, yeah, there's there is stuff that it it is. This was the left turn we were talking about earlier, playing like a meat grinder at some point. Like, but that's later. But yeah, again, it's like he's leaning into that sort of like even more like just sodden drunk uh, (laughs) at certain times, like still a bit romantic but just kind of again going a little more with the crazy with the fringe well when i think of this era so this is when yes because he was influenced by harry parch if you don't know who harry parch is he's a composer that would use like man like homemade instruments that's why everything sounds very you know he would have an emphasis on the rhythm and the percussion would sound like 
pots and pans because they probably were. He would use real percussion in there. He loved his he loved his phones, his xylophones and shit like that. Um, but where we would, would he that, be without his xylophones? <laughs> he would be that 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 telltale what I call the the Tom Waits rhythm that I described in the in the framing device for the discussion section. It's it's everywhere in this trilogy of albums. So the trilogy real, real fast is this one: Swordfish Trombones, nineteen eighty three, Rain Dogs, which is probably his magnum Woo! opus. 1985 and Frank's Wild Years. Now, Frank's Wild Years is a song on <laughs> Swordfish Trombones that he kind of turned into its own world. And this, so I think what I'd like to talk about that other, you know, as I already mentioned, like, what can we talk about that hasn't already been said? I like to talk about what these albums conjure in terms of artistic imagery. And when I when I especially listen to Rain Dogs, I can't help but think of like these bohemian gypsies, this traveling men and women, maybe part of a circus. Like I can see them. Oh, this yeah. is the kind of music they would make in um, a circle together and probably a drum circle. Oh, there's steam so coming out of, out of sewers all over the place. It's dark. It's damp. There's fucking, you know, there's just the sound of car horns and, and crying oh, yeah. babies and people having sex and uh, you know, every, everything's just a little distorted. Uh, things are, are weirdly dirtier the longer you look at them. Um, those people aren't actually smiling at you. Uh, like, it's, yeah, it, it's one of those, like, awesome paintings where, like, the longer you linger, you realize this is nearly, like, it is not nearly so, like, innocent as it first looks. Um, because, yeah, you start to really lean into the morbid and it's like, oh, that person actually straight up looks like they're dead. Um, you start to like <laughs> could just question reality death to an extent. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, you wonder like, am I awake? Where the where the hell am I? Like, somebody please pinch me. Like, I think I want to wake up. There's orphans running around. There's you know, because there's another motif. He talks about stuff like that. Part of the underbelly of society is you know the forgotten, the lost, mm -hmm. and he talks the unwanted. About them. Exactly. And he talks about them all the time, and especially in this trilogy of albums. And again, since this was a turning point, so was his acting career. He he acted in The Outsiders in 1983 and very famously Rumblefish in 1983 as well. That kind of just launching point, I guess. Yeah, you could say. Um, well, what's crazy is like it was it was a it was a risk. He was, you know, just like he's this, um, you know, part of that underbelly of society the criminality the card shark in him he, he or the gambler he was rolling the dice because his um the record label he started working with didn't even want to start releasing these they're like who's we're not gonna fucking have an audience with the sound and so he went with a complete ever record label he was like okay well if you don't want to release it I'll, I'll find someone else that will and he I, did. i'm going to do this so yeah it can be you or not and he did it to incredible acclaim to the point where he created a, such a sound that, again, like we've talked about, we were joking about earlier in the show, um, people would try to copy this over and over again, especially the timber and the vocal approach that he helped define. And if he heard anything like that, he sh he wanted to show the man. So after, you know, he was being pushed down and pushed away because he would oft often talk about that as well. It's like, uh, you know my record label supporting all these other acts like the Eagles and shit, but they're not, there's no faith in me. Where's the faith. And he did that for the rest of his career. So if anybody would challenge him, he would pretty much be like, no, we're going to do this. And then if they people, and then when he got success for that, 
success from that. If people copied him, he's like, no, you're not going to do that without my permission. I'm going to sue your fucking ass. And he would often win most of them. I mean, it's not that hard to make a clear point of like, this is what I sound like. Uh, <laughs> you know, as again, this again. isn't uh, this isn't your 80s hair metal where it's so easily like, which which girly men is this? Like, which which poofy head like guitar solos? Like, no, it, this is like, you couldn't you couldn't have to work harder to be such a specific like thing. Um, no one is like this naturally except for him. <laughs> right. And he takes, so after this era, he takes a long break. Yes, indeed. Uh, and he doesn't release an album for five years. Yeah, long for know? him. <laughs> um, part of that reason is, you know, he was leaning into that theatrical career that, yeah. you know, he wanted to be an actor. So he did a lot of other roles. Uh, we're not going to spend a ton of time, time on them. So like the Stone Boy, the Cotton Club, Down by Law, Ironweed, Greasy Lake. Candy Mountain, um, you know, a big time 1988, I think was was important because he wrote music for that as well. But it wasn't until oh, yeah. 1992 that he wrote Bone Machine that was kind of like a return to form. Like he kind of used it was kind of a combination of the old and new, like the new Tom Waits. And um, this was people often people love this album I, as much as I thought it was solid. I, I think some of even his later work was a little more captivating to me but people call this bone machine 1992 his most cohesive uh i don't know that i would ever have described it that way but i do know <laughs> that i love um this album. little bone machine mm -hmm. okay why it's it sounds like a madman in a room it mm. just sounds like you miked the asylum um but the, it happens to be somebody who likes to make music <laughs> uh i don't know it's like say like you said like somebody who knows Call how to old fashioned. somebody who knows how to make their own damn instruments and there's again he's like screaming and screeching and just wailing out these insane lyrics and stuff um and then other times just just whispering quietly these murderous little lullabies and i think that's I some of my favorite things is when he album. does it's he does the little poetry uh interludes like where he's just kind of sing talking to you or just straight doing a piece like little there's maybe a little bit of musicality in the background maybe a little rhythm and he's just kind of describing oh, i know, mean doing the, that like a like a poetry set oh yeah there's absolutely like practically beat poetry um i mean even back yeah back on like rain dogs is the first instance that i like fully recognize because again you've got like yeah you have random sounds like again like random horns and whistles and bells and shit going there's creepy <laughs> ass just like a piano not quite a melody but just something kind of like tinkling away and he's literally just like again this was we were joking about earlier it's like you know um Something like Snyth and Hennepin and the doorknobs all have names like prostitutes. And you wonder why there's a cat. <laughs> that is so fucking good. And there's I'm a cat so drinking impressed. milk from the alley in the back. And you wonder. I'm glad you didn't do that before we went live so I could react to it. So this is all. This is the first time hearing this. So this is, so this is how I live my life. People don't. People kind of keep forgetting that it's like, oh, that's right. That's why I like to do like well, voice, you are voice, voice actor. Exactly. It's like, <laughs> it's kind of why I like to do this stuff because it's it, it, some of it comes naturally. But I also just I love doing it and practice it some too. But anyways, yeah, it's it's like. Let's tell the good people. People, what else he did during this time so in 1992 he was in he was in Bram Stoker's Dracula yes. I think this is his best role he was Renfield and uh, yeah. so Dracula's his number just one leaning into the creepy just like yeah. get to eat bugs live in the dark oh, yeah. dirt under his nails it was um, perfect 
And then in 1993, he went on to make The Black Rider, which is um, the studio songs for a musical that he wrote, which was literally called The Black Rider. I really like this. You can really see the theatrics in a lot of the pieces, the most, noto- <laughs> the most notable being the song, The Black Rider. And this is at the same time he helped to develop a musical named Alice as well, which we see a again a studio musical rendition to this an album version alice in 2002 but before we get there we get to 1999's mule variation and this is where we see tom go a little a little a little more country a little more gospel i absolutely love this album and from how the show is going i'm gonna i have a feeling you're not you're not crazy about it no actually i love it oh we agreed i think this one's fantastic it was one strike one strike and then we converge at mule, mule variations it was it was excellent to the point yeah. where i thought someone else produced you know he him and his wife took over production uh, a long time ago you know once they mm-hmm. broke from his record label i actually thought someone else came in i thought it was uh t-bone burnett a famous producer hmm. who's wrote his who's helped produce a number of of country sounding albums and it has that. It was just oozing that sound that I was like, "Did he have a little help on this?" But no, it was all it was all Tom and Miss Brennan. Goes back to that kind of like I think I said it earlier, but like Dark Bayou kind of feel. Yeah. And there's there's oh, yeah. literally like there's more banjo. It's slower. It's a. It just literally feels a little sweatier. Um, I like you know you've got awesome like weird slow jams like your Chocolate Jesus. Just again, it feels like a fever dream or something in a way. And there's relig- religiosity through his career and little snippets. And also chocolate true. Jesus, yeah. you know, because I feel I like the Filipino more I, <laughs> I feel like the more we get to know him through his art, I, there is maybe there is a religious man deep down under there as well. I, I feel like, yeah, it's it's there a lot. Um, it's it's interesting how many people carry those kinds of things throughout their life, because, I mean, um, you know, tons of other artists. I, I also notice I'm like, yeah, this person has an interesting amount of like Christian imagery, but they don't actually it's not like they're singing about like actual Christianity. But there's just right. like a few things or concepts. Um, well, that is, I mean, Chris Cornell's and such. But uh, we, I mean, yeah, our <laughs> America was built on a lot of Judeo-Christian yeah. faith values and imagery. And I mean, it's 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 everywhere. It's deep in our roots it as is. a society. Yeah. So it makes sense, I guess, in that regard, that he was going to sing about these things and stuff like that. But through and through, I think Mule Variations is is probably I, one of my favorite. Yeah, in from the later, like even the later start thing with Big in Japan, I freaking love that one, and it's so quintessentially. It's got such a fun groove to it. Uh, I love the horns in that one too. Again, just like you know your typical sort of stand up like bass, just do 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 do, just <laughs> just dicking around, and you've got the spoken <laughs> word one. What's he building in there? Is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, Certainly give it a listen. I mean, children. there's there's so much more that we could say, but we have we we don't have time. Oh, uh, around no. this time, uh, we do have to t- t- touch on some of his filmography again. Um, between these albums, he did 1993's short cuts which is one of probably another famous role he did and in 1999 not not as famous but um for a lot of you fairly famous film nerds out there you probably remember 1999's mystery man which he was it's like a millennial cult classic or something yeah exactly exactly 2002 he released essentially what i would call a double lp but instead of releasing it as one two album piece he released literally two albums but at the same time and that was 2002's alice 
and 2002's Blood Money. Both very solid, um, a little in the middle of the Tom Waits lane in terms of his musical spectrum. Alice, I think, is a little better than Blood Money, personally. Yeah. And, but they're both great. Um, they're obviously spiritual successors to each other. You listen to them back to back. It doesn't matter the order, though. That's why they're kind of like a double LP. That's how I look at them. And um, this led to what I think is probably my favorite thing he's done since 2000, which is Real Gone, because it was one part musical departure, one part still his Tom Waits signature sound of, you know, blues-infused heartache, but it was also him using sampling and turntable scratching and literally fucking beatboxing. I learned that he's a huge hip hop fan and that was put into a lot of his music. It's also, I would say this is the most cohesive um, bone machine. I, I, I beg to differ, but uh, I think this yeah. is most very cohesive and his most harmonic. He actually would sing with uh, more traditional music theory harmonies than I've ever seen him do before ever. There's there's something interesting about like is when I'm when I'm doing like a basically just like oh shuffle Tom Waits or especially if I'm doing like a like the the Spotify version which is just called like you know like this is Tom Waits. Yeah. Uh, there's those times where a song grabs you and you you know you're just like oh, which album is this from again? Like it doesn't sound too early. It's not too late. So often it's some this album. This is the one that brings me over to have to check or whatever. And, hmm. and there's just the, yeah, the songs, it's, it's always somehow stood out to me. And yet I also oddly, like almost never listened to it cohesively as an album. I think this is one of the few I still listen to from front to back when I'm like going through his discography again. I, I kind of, yeah, I kind of feel like since I didn't maybe do it that justice, uh, previously that it just, it, it, it never really like sort of set in or manifested within or like, landed yeah with me because okay. again it's like I, I still end up liking the songs I'm always just like oh man like what's this mm -hmm. one again like which album it's weird because it's that damn, damn but not different yeah it's that time. damn like just red like you know cover with the black uh, font I'm just like that's it's fucking real gone again <laughs> uh, around this time uh, he was uh, right before this he started or didn't start in but he um, played a role in Coffee and Cigarettes 2003 yeah and um, in 2006 he released what he called Orphans Brawlers Ballers and Bastards which is essentially just a collection of it's a three hour collection of you know b-sides and rarities and live cuts and demos like just like everything that didn't have a home he put it here so you can kind of see the rest of his maybe maybe see the side of his how he would develop his pieces too because a lot of them were unfinished pieces i didn't since this was kind of a you know an offshoot i didn't spend a ton of time on it nah. um and that's um and that's what leads us to our last lp on his discography knowing him though and like looking at the timetables like all these times timestamps we're probably due for a new album but before <laughs> we get one uh in recent times we have to talk about 2011's bad as me um this was this was solid. It was a lot like Alice in Blood Money, a lot of the same, not in a bad way, but, you know, there was no real huge musical departures like Real Gone. Solid, um, interesting place to end his discography. And but part of that is he leaned into his acting chops. But before we talk about some of his credits um, after 2011 and in, in between Orphans and Bad As Me, what you think of what, you, what did you think of Bad As Me? 
I, I it is a it's a very good album. Um, but in, yeah, interestingly, like it's it's solid. But yeah, there's yeah, it's there's no, there's these aren't bad songs as far as Tom Waits songs goes. But it just it also like it just never We're on autopilot a little bit. We're mm. in his comfort and comfort in the comfort zone. Could be nothing Could new, be. nothing old. Because I mean, say. you know, it, it, think about the fact that he hasn't released anything in twelve years. Like maybe even he just kind of has been trying to take like a time out and being like. Do I want to just keep doing this one thing? Like, Ooh. is it too old to do anything new or different? It's conspiracy um, theory time. You think he's he has a little bit of writer's block or is bored with, um, with the, his musical output? That or like just somehow burnout really also caught up to him. And that uh, I, you know, if it's burnout, I still feel like I can see it's a, it's like a slight change of pace would be necessary. But at the same time, it's like, dude, you cannot ignore your career. Even if you tried to do some newer, different stuff, you're still like, if you were to go tour you got to be honest with yourself and just know that people are going to be pissed if you don't do all your insane <laughs> shit where you just, <laughs> just God, like fucking so weird watch tub, like basin, just, but yeah, I might, my theory is simple. It's he was folk, you know, he artists like to focus on different things. He wanted to be an actor more than he wanted to be a musician at this time. That's where we yeah. saw him play roles in Wrist Cutters, Hello Story, 2006, uh, The Imaginarium, Dr. Parnassus, 2009, yeah, cool. Seven Psychopaths, 2012, <laughs> The Old Man. That was really cool. That was really cool. I enjoyed The Old that. Man and the Gun, 2018, which we have covered on one of our previous shows, and just recently, 2021, Licorice Pizza. And that brings us to, as of the airing of the show, to, to date, as of the airing of, yes, this show, that's his career in a nutshell. In a nutshell. So tell the good people. Now we need to focus on the arts. Tell the good people why they should study the works of Tom Waits. Tom Waits embraced individuality with a fearlessness, despite knowing that what he was going to do or just what he wanted to do was pretty. Again, to put it in a nice way, perhaps avant-garde. Um, yes, it, it was like. Again, he he yeah didn't have much mainstream uh, success necessarily or appeal, but yet there was always enough between his passion and you know there's still like he has that cult following. So clearly, people have been liking what he's been doing along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, he just wasn't your you know your Jackson Browns and your Eagles or whatever. But people love and respect him because he has just such a um, like monopoly on this character basically. That uh, <laughs> literally, he's just he. I do feel like uh, while that's him. Complete. Yeah. So again, it's like, I feel like that is him, but I I still love the exaggerated version that puts on these insane concerts yeah. and goes and does it's these weird art, roles. Yeah. Sure. It's just, I, yeah. I, I, I happen to love it. Uh, and I do think there's something worth that. At least everybody should check it out. Just given uh, how impactful it has been. That is almost like one of those retrospective things of being like, wow, you know, turns out there are a shit ton of people that like, and have heard of Tom Waits. So yeah, like then check them out. Like it's literally it's simple as that. Like great music, it's all over all the streamies, and surely you can find a lot of his movies and stuff. And again, just think of uh, think about like if Bob Dylan had just like a fucked up cousin, like a fucked. <laughs> oh, up he would. I feel like Tom Waits himself would like that. We haven't done this in a while, uh, so we need to talk about the fact that we know Tom Waits is a huge fan of the show. He loves it. So, uh, Tom, if you're listening, we love you. Come on the show, confirm. The statement about you being Tom or, or Bob Dylan's cousin. We would like that very much. But until then, guys, 
Tom Waits from top to bottom, the career that is Tom Waits, the myth, the man, the legend. I want to thank you for listening. I want to thank my guest, Mr. Philip Church of philipchurch.tech. But before we go, you know, we got a little more for you, a little icing on the cake, a little cherry on top. Oh, cherry on top. Oh, that's good. We got a little cherry on top with what we call the gym of the week. If you don't know what the gym of the week is, it's something we like to talk about here at the end of our shows, but doesn't always fit into the scheme of the episode because it may just be in our, you know, may just be on our radar, you know, last day, last week, maybe last month, but we want to give it to you guys so you guys can dig deeper. Before we get though, let's talk about their sponsor. Today's gems are brought to you by Zencaster. Zencaster is our go-to tool for remote podcast recordings. What's great is that you can record separate audio and video tracks, and it's all backed up on a secured cloud, so you never lose your hard work. Even better, it's easy to use, and there's nothing to download. So go to zen.ai, that's Z-E-N.ai slash art of the beholder, or just use promo code art of the beholder and get 30% off your first three months with the pro account. Now back to the gems. Mine are short and sweet, so I can give the floor back to my guest, and that is one very specific one. And we've already talked about the entire show, The Last of Us, on on our show as a gym, but I would like to direct your attention to episode three. Even if you don't want to watch the whole fucking thing, Bill and Frank. just watch episode three. And if you don't tear up a little bit or fully cry like a baby, like I did, I'm, I'm not sure if you're fully, you know, a developed human yet. So check it out. The Last of Us, episode three, and then one that's brand new, and that is Louis C.K.'s Back to the Garden. Yeah, I got, uh, I got two. And they're from roughly the same time period. Interesting. Uh, the first one is since it's it we've talked about um, Tom Waits. Uh, sorry, Tom York. <laughs> um, <laughs> since we talk about Tom York, we did uh, talk about Tom Waits. You're right. <laughs> um, since we yeah, since we've talked about Tom York before previously, I'll give just a quick shout out to um, 2000, 2003's Hail to the Thief. Though I fucking love that album. It's got wow. such amazing songs all throughout it. There's a couple of weird ones mm-hmm. here and there, but it actually slaps like a motherfucker. It's really really good. So go back and check that one out. It's weirdly underappreciated and just not acknowledged in their discography for some stupid reason. Um, no, the other thing that I want to give like my bigger gem spotlight to is, uh, fucking Daniel Craig's introduction as Bond in 2006's Casino Royale. That movie is awesome. We have some, you, you got some, uh, some older gems. I like it. If the good people want to get a hold of you, how do they do that? Well, you know, my cell phone number, (laughs) um, no, philipchurch.tech, funny Ooh, enough. philipchurch.tech. philipchurch.tech. Uh, it's Philip with one L and then, uh, church like the building. Uh, the Sunday building and then dot tech. And that's because I'm not only a narrator and a voice guy, I am a big old nerd. Guys, if you want to get a hold of us, you know what to do. Novadayproductions.com at underscore Novo underscore day at Novaday Media. Like, subscribe, do all the things. We don't care. The show's going to be the same. Write and review if you'd like to sponsor a little love child or or uh, reach out to us or you'd like to be on the show even better. You can get a hold of us, specifically Clayton, our business lead at NovaDayMedia at gmail.com. Here comes the cell phone number. But until next time, guys, be good to each other. And as always, good luck and Godspeed. We love you. Art of the Beholder is brought to you by NovoDay Productions. Created and hosted by Novo Day and the Novo Day Collective. Facebook.com slash NovoDayMedia. At NovoDayMedia on Twitter and Instagram. Music by A Company. Facebook.com slash AcoMusic123. Aco on Spotify. Logo designed by Tom Justice, J-E-S-T-U-S, of thejusticecompany.com, and executively produced by Clayton Anderson. All rights reserved.
He's a lounge lizard.